0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the next edition of the Guardian Mindset Podcast. And this one, a couple of weeks ago, I set out a shout out to everybody and said, "Listen, if you had some ideas uh, or pros and cons about the show, feel free to reach out to us and let us know what you think." Well, we're gonna we're gonna title this show "Clearly Established Law," and then we're gonna directly uh, I'm directly gonna reach out and thank uh, Scott Waldenson from Oregon uh, DPSST uh, who. Um, the Oregon state of Oregon Public Safety Academy, who reached out and sent us some great um, uh, compliments on the, on the program, but also asked us some different questions. And, and this one, basically what he said is, during recent episodes, you asked for ideas. So here's one. What clearly establishes something as case law? I'm having a heated debate with a few instructors regarding the recent Ninth Circuit Corrections use of force case, Hyde versus City of Wilcox. Now, the question, as he said, is they believe that this case has created specific rules regarding what type of amount of force, what type and amount of force is a drive stun in a strike or a strike in the leg. And when the question is, is, is this clearly established? So let's start out with just getting under the concept, because we've talked about qualified immunity multiple times, and I guarantee you we're going to talk about qualified immunity uh, again multiple times. But qualified immunity is one of two, uh, has two prongs to identify whether there is qualified immunity. And more importantly, before we get into the Hyde case, it's the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit has had some challenges in actually following the law as it applied by the Supreme Court. We saw that in the Casella case, and then we saw that again in the City of Escondido case, which is a 2017 and 2018 matter that was being addressed. So let's do a review just so that we're on the same page. I won't dive too much deep into it, but, I, but as I teach classes all the time, one of the things that I say often is that if you're not teaching about the clearly established law, if you're not providing policy on clearly established law, then you're missing the point. And because really what we're guided on doing is identifying and following clearly established law. So Scott's got a great question as to what the hell is clearly established law. And the best way that I can explain it is just how the courts explained it from 2017 through 2019, starting with the White versus Pauly case, going to the Casella case, and then to the City of Escondido's uh, versus Edmonds case. And the first part was, what is clearly established law? So let me give you. There's two prongs to the qualified immunity argument, and the first prong is, um, was there a constitutional violation? Did do the facts alleged by the plaintiff show that the officer's conduct violated the constitutional right. And remember, the facts got to be most favorable to the plaintiff in the plaintiff's view to get through the, the first element. Now, a lot of times what we see in these cases is that we get through the first element to the second element because the court just wants to. And the second element is, was the right clearly established? So before I get into the legalese, if Scott and I were having a conversation and Scott said to me, Eric, just tell me what clearly established law is, I would say it to you this way. What the Supreme Court jurisprudence has shown is that there's two types of cases that come through the court system. The first type of case is going to be the rule case, right? So Graham versus Connor, Tennessee versus Garner, Miranda, uh, uh, Arizona versus Hicks, uh, key Fourth Amendment cases. Those are the cases that set the rules for the application. Now, once the rule is set, that is not clearly established law because that is a rule. Now, what happens next is that officers go out and about their way and they begin to employ their uh, tactics and operations utilizing the rules that they understand. And then there are lawsuits. The lawsuits that follow evaluate whether or not there are, uh, whether or not the rule is going to be applied to a certain set of facts. And that's the key application here. Clearly established law is law where the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court has said, no, this is what we expect you to do in this situation. Now, as we've talked about multiple times before in the past dealing with the use of electronic control weapon, that is a great example on the fact that, you know, electronic control weapons became operational in early 2000. 2002, they were operational, but it wasn't until 2006 and 2007 where any of the most significant court cases came out that guided our use on on the issue of of um, what is clearly established law. Now, as we sit here today, specifically to your point, Scott, as to the use of a drive stun or a strike, one thing is very clear is that... Um, one thing that is very clear is that there are almost a 1,000 cases in the Court of Appeals system that have articulated many nuances specifically associated with use of electronic control weapon. Uh, what is active resistance, drive stun, when can you do this, when can you do that, those type of issues, and, and, and there's about a 1,000 cases. And if you go to uh, the website Americans for Effective Law Enforcement, um, aele Alpha Echo echo.org there is actually a page that outlines all of the uh, electronic control weapon cases in the country so you can see how narrowly that is. So, But when we go to the, when we go to the second element, uh, which I consider to be the most important element, the second element is, was the right clearly established and how was that determined? Um, now, if you've heard any of my training over the last decade, I say it over and over again, we have a legal obligation to teach our officers what the courts have defined as clearly established law. And the second element is, for me, the most important element. And the element that Scott has brought up there, what is clearly established law? The second element is, was the right clearly established and how was it determined? Now, as you know, if you heard any of my training over the last decade, I say it over and over again that we have a legal obligation to teach our officers what the courts have defined as clearly established law. No matter what the area, search and seizure, laws of arrest, First Amendment, Fourth Amendment, use of force, you name it, officers need to know clearly established law. There is jurisprudence or a history of law that clearly identifies what an officer should or should not do, and we have a legal obligation to ensure that officers have knowledge of that because the courts have said we don't want you to make the same bad decision again, and if you do, If we were deliberately indifferent in teaching you that, clearly established law, and we are found that you have violated that, then there is no qualified immunity and you're on the hook. Because you should have known, could have known, did know, or you obviously clearly knew. The question is that $1,000 question. Would it be clear to a reasonable officer that his conduct was unlawful in the situation he confronted? Well, that makes up a majority of what we deal with in civil liability. Why do you think in civil liability that the court is going to look at policies Going to look at training, going to look at other incidents, internal affairs, in, uh, investigations, discipline. They want to see what your officers had the chance to learn. Uh, did they learn the law, and are they following the law? The issue with clearly, uh, clearly applicable law and the challenges that we see from clearly applicable law clearly come into play, being with what have the courts said on the subject and in, in, in its application. Okay, so on the issue of clearly established law, Scott here identifies a case, and the case that we'll talk about is Hyde versus The City of Wilcox. It is an opinion that was released by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals on January 6, 2022. Now, the one thing we know for sure is that the the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals still hasn't clearly identified what is uh, clearly established law because they continue to push the envelope here. Let me give you a brief overview, and I'll get into the detail. In this case, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal panel affirmed in part and reversed in part the district court's denial of a motion to dismiss a complaint brought pursuant to 42 USC Section 1983, alleging, among other things, that law enforcement officers used excessive force on pretrial detainee Luke Hyde when they applied physical force and a taser to subdue him and failed to provide him with adequate medical chair. Um, Hyde stopped breathing. 21 minutes after being put in a restraint chair, and despite efforts by the officers to resuscitate, resuscitate him, he died five lay, days later, and this lawsuit followed. So let's take a look at what occurred in this situation. Luke Ironhide's late-night return home from a road trip was cut short by a traffic stop that ended tra- tra- tragically in a detentional facility. Suffering from mental health issues and deprived of his medication for several hours, Hyde tried to flee and scuffle with several prison officers who used physical force and a taser to subdue him. So let's go right down to the background facts here. As I said, one night, Hyde is driving home through the city of Wilcox towards his parents' home in San Antonio. Around midnight, Wilcox police detective Jay Valley pulled Hyde over and arrested him on suspicion of driving under the influence. Hyde arrived in booking at about 1.30 a.m., submitted for it to a blood draw. He tested negative for alcohol, but positive for amphetamines, a finding consistent with his Adderall prescription for his diagnosed attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. For the next five and a half hours, Hyde napped, ate, talked to officers on duty, and requested a phone to contact the lawyer. Hyde did not receive his prescription medication, and by 7.30 a.m., he appeared restless. Minutes later, he charged toward the door, fell to the floor, and injured his head. Deputy Robinson and Sergeant Prago opened Hyde's door while Jordan Faulkner, a medic, waited in the booking area to examine Hyde's head wound. Hyde first emerged from his cell calmly, but then sprinted through the booking area into the female cell area while the officers unsuccessfully tried to tackle him. Hyde reached a dead end in the female cell area where he stood with his back against the wall facing the deputies. At this point, two deputies deployed their taser at Hyde in a fast sequence three times. In the doorway of the booking area, a scuffle ensued. The deputies heaped onto Hyde and tried to handcuff him to the door handle. The lieutenant and sergeant then entered the fray. With Hyde lying on the ground, Robinson delivered 12, 11 closed fists, uh, pronial strikes to Hyde's leg, while other officers fastened leg irons on him. The, one of the deputies used his taser twice, at Hyde's thigh for about five seconds each. At about 8:02 a.m., Hyde was dragged to his feet and collapsed to his knees as at least six officers lift, lifted his body and his handcuffed Hyde back to, hands behind his back. At 8:03 a.m., uh, they retrieved a restraint chair and four officers hoisted Hyde's body into onto it and his hands cuffed behind his back and his legs fastened with leg irons. About 8:05 a.m. Uh, One of the deputies again used his taser on Hyde's thigh for about five seconds, while another deputy used her arms to force Hyde's head into a restrained hold as four officers fastened Hyde into a chair, and Hyde was fully restrained in the chair at 8.06 a.m. At 8.24 a.m., Hyde rolled his head back, gasped for air as four officers passed by him. Three three minutes later, he stopped breathing. A minute later, he was found pulseless. They immediately removed him from the chair, tried to relieve him, and they were unable to relieve him. His cause of death included blunt force injuries, kidney damage caused by muscular breakdown, a uh, large heart, and coronary uh, atherosclerosis. A lawsuit was brought, and part of the lawsuit was brought dealt specifically with the issue of whether or not the was qualified immunity on a motion to dismiss for the deputies. The court case calls, says the complaint plausibly alleges that two of the officers violated Hyde's clearly established constitutional rights. So, the court goes through a methodical application, as methodical as the Ninth Circuit can, but it's methodical, to determine whether an officer enjoys qualified immunity. The court asks, in the order it chooses, whether the alleged misconduct violated a constitutional right, and two, whether the right was clearly established at the time of the alleged misconduct. A clearly established right is one that is sufficiently clear that reason, every reasonable official would have understood that what he was doing violates the right. The plaintiffs must point out in prior case law that are, must point out prior case law that articulates a constitutional rule specific enough to alert these deputies in this case that their particular conduct was unlawful. And, and Scott, to your point, that is one of the key areas here is you're going to have to point to another case where the court said what they are doing or what they did do is unlawful on its face. So when they look at this is the issue, they break it down into a couple of different parts in this complaint, in this uh, holding. So let's start with the analysis of pretrial detention. In analysis of pretrial detention, they use the Supreme Court 2015 case Kingley versus Hendrickson to look at whether the pretrial detention was objectively unreasonable. We know, based on the, the the law of Graham versus Connor, the following considerations must bear on the reasonableness or unreasonableness of the force used: the relationship between the need for the use of force and the amount of force used, the extent of the plaintiff's injury, any Efforts made by the offer to temper the limit, the amount of force, the severity of the security problem at issue, the threat reasonably perceived by the officer, and whether the plaintiff was actively resisting. And those are, they're going to, uh, they are reviewing uh, the Kingsley decision in this application. So they break it down into a couple of subsets here. Let's go through the most important one. Uh, number one, until Hyde was subdued or restrained, the force used by the officers was reasonable. The court says, at the outside, officers handled the situation reasonably. After Hyde first finally injured himself in his cell, he ran free through Brookings area of the detention center despite three officers trying to contain him. Given the need to quell a potentially dangerous situation, the officers were justified using their tasers against Hyde. Um, so there is the, the key question is, was this a clearly established law? Was it a violation of clearly established law? The court said, more importantly... The first application of the taser with Mr. Hyde running through the cell was reasonable and uh, and concluded that it was reasonable to use a taser to subdue and restrain a suspect who is unarmed and not suspected of serious offense. Now we move on to where other officers join the don't uh, join the fray as they discuss. As more officers join the fray, they justifiably continually using intermediate force. The taser and strikes on Hyde's leg because One, Hyde violently scuffled with the officers. Two, the officers had not yet restrained Hyde. And three, the officers were forced to make split-second judgments in circumstances that were tense, uncertain, and rapidly evolving. So while they call this the use of intermediate taser and strikes, like you've pointed out, Scott, in the application, uh, this is is in the alternative where the court is saying their use is okay in this situation in, in their analysis. The plaintiffs relied on a 2001 case, Dorle versus Rutherford, uh, to argue that they must consider Hyde's mental health issues in assessing the officer's use of force. Uh, The court came back and said, uh, to the contrary, the complaint reflects that Hyde remained calm and cooperative for several hours. Once Hyde was restrained and subdued, the, the, the analysis changed and officers were then alleged to have used excessive force. But the court came back and said, But the need for more force waned as circumstances changed. By 8.03 a.m., Hyde has his hands handcuffed behind his back and his legs shackled. Hyde appeared fatigued, remained on his knees, and seven officers surrounded him. Yet two minutes later, Proglo used his taser on Hyde's thigh for about five seconds, and Callahan used her arm to force Hyde's head into a restraint hole while he was then hit with another round of the taser. It is the need for force which is at the heart of the consideration of the Graham factors. Now, the one thing the court seems to focus on is, at the time the second level of, of application occurred, was there uh, a was was there need there? The defendants argue that continued force was justified because according to their interpretation of the complaint, Hyde is never plausibly alleged to have ceased fleeing, resting, or fighting before being fully restrained at 806 a.m. Admittingly, the complaint confusingly does not state what has occurred between 803 and 806. Uh the parties also inexplicably inexplicably did not include the jailhouse video in the in the record. So therefore, what happened between those times is not clear. Um, uh, The complaint, when read as a whole and in the plaintiff's favor, supports the claim that he was restrained but not resisting and posed no threat by 8.03 a.m. So the big issue that comes up part here is in part the the complaint alleges in this case that several minutes before the final taser use that Hyde had his hands handcuffed and feet shackled, he was too weak to stand and was surrounded by seven officers. Construing these facts in the plaintiff's favor, we conclude that Hyde was not fleeing and could no longer resist the officers. They also construe the statements by Hyde that he was fully restrained until 806 to mean that Hyde had not been fastened into a restrained chair and that we have never required that a suspect's every inch be immobilized before he is considered restrained for a reasonable force analysis. To the contrary, our cases routinely call suspects restrained after they have been handcuffed. Thus, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals says we conclude that viewing the complaint the light most favorable to Hyde, uh, officers or deputies used excessive force after Hyde was restrained and apparently no longer resisting. That leads to Section 3, where the court says deputies violated clearly established law. Our case is clearly established that the use of intermediate force, such as a head restraint or a taser, on a restrained or non-resisting suspect is unreasonable. For example, we have held the use of a chokehold on a non-resisting restrained person violates the Fourth Amendment's prohibition on the use of excessive force in the, in the Tolomeo case, we also relied on Drummond, in which we held that the officers used excessive force by pressing their weight on the suspect's neck and torso as he lay handcuffed on the ground. If thus should have been clear to the deputies that the use of a head restraint on Hyde was unreasonable when he had both his hands and feet shackled for two minutes and no longer could resist. Now, the key part that I want you to make here is that the court is specifically identifying things in which they have said in prior cases are unreasonable. So here what we're talking about is the head restraint. The court has already called that uh, unreasonable in the Drummond case. Therefore, it is clearly established law, and therefore it will stand as clearly established law going forth. The court said... The Ninth Circuit has found that the use of a taser excessive if the subject suspect does not pose an immediate threat. That is clearly established law. For example, in Matos, the court held that it was unreasonable to use a taser on a suspect who committed a minor offense and did not present an immediate threat to the officers, even though she refused to exit the car. And they referred to Bryan versus McPherson, which is one of the earlier 2010 Ninth Circuit cases, where the court said use of a taser unreasonable because the suspect committed a minor traffic violation and did not present an immediate threat. Here, the court said the officers should have been on notice that it was unreasonable to use the taser on Hyde, who was similarly not suspected of a serious crime, no longer threatened the officers after being restrained for two minutes and was no longer capable of resisting in the final stages of the scuffle our cases make it clear that the officer must reassess use of force in an evolving situation as the circumstances change. For example, the Ninth Circuit said, In Jones, we concluded that the officers were at first justified in using a taser on a suspect who had run away from a traffic stop, but neither threatened the officer nor committed a serious offense. But we held that by the time Jones was prone and surrounded by multiple officers, there would have been no continuing justification for the use of intermediate force. Similarly, in Drummond, we said that while force was justified in restraining a suspect, the calculus changed after he was handcuffed and lying on the ground. The court clarifies this by saying, To be clear, we are generally loath to second-guess law enforcement officers, actions in dangerous situations by analyzing each act without looking at the entire event. In considering the officers' mindset amid the uncertainty and chaos, we we should not scrutinize any officers' every minor move in a frantic and chaotic situation as if we were examining the, the Zaporoid film in slow motion. But here, the officers had two minutes to realize that Hyde, who was handcuffed, shackled, and exhausted, could no longer resist and did not pose a threat. It is clearly established that the officers cannot use intermediate force when the suspect is restrained, has stopped resisting, and does not pose a threat. These two officers thus cannot shield themselves by invoking qualified immunity. We affirm this aspect of the district court's ruling. So to get back to your question, Scott, and the analysis as you brought forward is where you said... I'm having a heated debate with a few instructors regarding a recent Ninth Circuit corrections case. They believe that this case creates specific rules regarding what type and amount of force is a drive, stun, or a strike. I do not believe that the court, in the case, to answer your question, deals with the specifics of identifying the type of force a drive, stun, or a strike is. And drive, stun has already been identified in prior cases in Ninth Circuit, as intermediate but and there has been some uh, there is a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals case on the use of the uh, the stick on striking which could be applied but really the purpose of this case the way I read this case through is that the clearly established law was that they could not use a intermediate level of force whatever that may be or a level of force once the subject was reasonably restrained and that they allowed the officers qualified immunity for the force that was used prior to the restraint, but they did not allow the officer's qualified immunity in the in the force that was used once the subject was reasonably restrained. And remember, that's an important part here is the court said, we're not going to require you to be locked down in a five-point harness chair to be reasonably restrained. Most of the time in our application, just putting handcuffs on an individual could lead to the point that you were reasonably restrained. So, Scott, I thank you for that question. I thank you for that information. I hope that puts some guidance on what you sent forward and hope you that makes everything clear as mud for you as we move forward. But clearly established law is court of appeals or higher cases that have identified when, where, and how we can use force. And more specifically, let's remember the Lombardo case in the Supreme Court where the need for the use of force must be in direct relationship to the amount of force used in its application. I thank you for that, and with that, I'll end. Help those who need your help, protect those who need your protection, and most importantly, keep yourself and others safe. Thank you.